is there always parity between the local pound and the national one? For instance, if I bought something uh, labelled 60p and paid with an Exeter pound, uh, would I expect to get exactly 40 pence in you would. England coins? You would, yeah. So there are some other local currency systems which have a kind of... Um, which, yeah, which are kind of they're, they're like so, so there's things like Ethica Hour in New York State where, where, it's, where you get a, a quarter of an hour note and a half an hour and three hours and you trade in kind of time. Time is what it's backed by. But I think most, most of these are, are tied to, to, to sterling because our key thing was the models before like Let's and so on were very useful in some ways but you could never really, they didn't translate into the local high street economy. We wanted something that people could take and they could shop with and they could use in that kind of a way. Yeah. Uh, so they're all, yeah, they're always tied to, to sterling in that way. Yeah, so what happens when the mayor goes on holiday? You can't take Bristol. I didn't mean, no, no, well, you know, so. no, no, well, I presume he goes out of Bristol sometimes. I think, I think he's kind of a bit of an exception. I mean, he's, he's kind of a, I did, I did actually meet him once because people often, when I did talk to him, what does he spend them on? He said, uh, <laughs> He said, "I tip very heavily." <laughs> <laughs> I think he's. I think he's. He's a. He's a kind of a man of means. You know, he doesn't have a mortgage, and he probably pays his energy bills in other ways. But I think. He, I think for him, it's a really. It was a great way as the mayor of really getting to know the city and the local traders, and uh, and, and then also, sort of, yeah. And it's been a brilliant. It's a fantastic story to be able to say the mayor sort of takes his full salary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing occurred to me, you were talking about um, the fact that um, you wanted to try and get at least 10% of the food moved from supermarkets to local shops. It occurs to me that what people want is convenience. They say, I go to the supermarket because it's one stop shop, that's the end of it. Or I want to do it online or whatever. Do you know if anybody has attempted to get the local shops to work together so that there's a sort of central way in which people can order yeah. and have it delivered by one van. There's a fantastic thing which um, I can't remember what it is in French. It's the something there's something that says yes in French. And here it's called the Food Assembly. And it's just launched here quite recently. And it's a brilliant um, software platform, I think is the expression. And it's a thing where... Uh, uh, which has done a lot of looking at, at online shopping, supermarket shopping, what people like about it, how it works, but then it uses it to drive the local food economy. So when you go on it, so if you started a food assembly here, you would have a website, Wilms on Food Assembly, and then actually people could then add in, uh, so if, if you had 10 leeks you wanted to sell, you had 400 pots of jam, and you had a field of potatoes, you would enter that stuff into the website, and then I would go shopping, and I would just be buying the leeks, and I'd buy some jam, and I'd buy some potatoes, and you do all of your shopping on the website, and it's not, and it's, and it's a, it's a kind of a range of a breadth of stuff that you would want, be wanting to get, and then you order it all, and then there's one day, usually on a Saturday morning, at a place, the food assembly takes place. You go along, and and and, and you just pick up all your stuff from everybody, but it, but so as as a trader, you know when you go, everything you take, you've you've you sold. Yeah, and it's beautifully done. So it sends people newsletters and stuff about the different growers, and it's just beautifully done. There's 450 of them across France. It's taking off really, really fast. The first ones 
transition viewed have started one down in Cornwall. Uh, it's a thing where, which sort of, and it's also designed in such a way that the person who, who runs it gets an income out of it from the beginning. The model is very well kind of thought out. So, that, so that, that's one of the first things I've seen that has really done that, that has really thought, how do we create, how do we create a, a, a local food model which is as convenient but actually better? Because you get to go along, it's really nice, you get to go along every Saturday, you get to see everybody, you get to pick up all your stuff, you get to have a relationship with people, have a relationship with, you, know, you, get, you get to meet all the different people who, who you're getting your food from. It's, so the food assembly, have a look at the food assembly, it's a really good one. Oh, is there a woman question before we go before we go on to this gentleman here? Yes. Um, so the um, uh, purchasing committee and the community right to build right to build order. There's nothing. No, sadly, we don't have. So there's a fantastic thing in Scotland, which is now legislation that's going through, which is um, a part of their community empowerment bill, which is called a community absolute right to buy, which is a community right of compulsory purchase, which says if a building or a piece of land in a in, in, in a town or a city has been derelict for more than a year, the community has the right to compulsorily purchase it. That's fantastic. Wow. That's awesome. I tell you, everyone's going to move to Scotland. Scotland, you know, if they, if they get independence, there won't be anyone left. Um, the, the, the community right to build order here, you, you, need to, you need to have some kind of... You, you can't do it on a piece of land without an, a, without an arrangement with the landowner that you could actually make it happen. So, so, so the contract that we... Uh, we signed on this piece of land was basically that we would be the people who would who would be the route to planning. We would provide the route to planning, and in exchange for that, we get a third of the site for one topless pound, and we get another third of the site. The value of that is determined by what we get planning permission for, minus various other costs. So it's it's something where. Um, Yes, yeah, so, so you, you need the landowner to, be, to, to agree to it. You can't just sort of do it without their permission. But at the same time, who actually builds it, once you've got the consent, is entirely up to you. So you, know, you could use, if a community wanted to work with a developer, you could use it in that way. Or, but actually, I think what we're trying to do with Atmos, as the first substantial community right to build order to go through, because it's been a power that's been available for three years, but there's been hardly any of them done, and a couple of very small ones, we want to be able to say, look, you can set up a community development company to make this happen, and you underpin it with an 80% local materials design brief, and you have that kind of degree of consultation. You know, all of that stuff kind of underpins it. So we want to start, do the first one, and really kind of show what's possible with it as something that's then very replicable. You know, as a kind of, to say development can be a real driver for innovation and economic activity in a town, not just building. You know, that's kind of the easy bit, really. Money is a symbol of trust, of course. So my guess is that you don't start off a transition by trying to launch a local currency. But given that several have been successfully launched now, is there any kind of general rules that we can extract or, or suggestions about when is the right moment to launch a local 
knowledge about the crowd series has just become apparent because it comes out of the activities that you've already been engaging in in order to build a sufficient level of trust. I think the thing with it, the thing with the thing with anything in transition is that it's only going to happen if you've got people who want to make it happen. Transition is driven by what people are passionate about. If everybody who gets involved in transition is passionate about food and fruit trees, you're not going to set up a community energy company. It's just not going to happen. So local currencies genuinely come generally come out when some people say that's a good idea, and they kind of are. You know, like any idea, you start asking people around you, and people say, yeah, that's good. It's interesting talking to the people in Exeter doing the Exeter Pound about how they got started. So the, the, the chief exec in the Exeter City Council, around, around exactly the same time as people in Transition Exeter said, we should do an Exeter Pound. He was saying, we should do an Exeter Pound. And then people around the people, the people around the guy in Exeter City Council said, you should talk to Transition Exeter. And people around Transition Exeter said, you should talk to him. And then they met and said, yeah, we should do this. And so now the Exeter Pound is Exeter City Council's second highest economic priority for the city, making that work. Uh, the the uh, uh, Plymouth, there'll be a Plymouth pound within a year, it looks like, and it's, it's becoming a key thing that the council wants to do that. So um, uh, I think they just sort of felt, about three years ago, the New Economics Foundation did these things called Clone Town Britain, these studies called Clone Town Britain, where they went, they, they sort of ranked different cities around the country mm -hmm. to the degree to which they were just becoming clone towns. And Exeter came third, I think. Mm -hmm. And they were mortally upset. They were really horrified by it. And actually, it was one of the things that really kind of made them want to start doing this as a way of trying to pull themselves away from that. So you need people who want to do it. You need... Uh, you know, the Bristol Pound could only really work on that scale with the support of Bristol City Council. So they built that relationship with them over three or four years before then. So when they went with this idea, the council said, that's nice. Sometimes it's a kind of a coming together of circumstances. So also Bristol knew that in three years' time it wanted to be the, the uh, European Green Capital, which it is this year. So they could sort of see the role of a Bristol Pound uh, in terms of that as well. Um, or sometimes it just needs a people, group of people to say, we're just going to do it, and you just kind of crack on with it. I mean, there's lots of very good support. The Bristol Pound now do a lot of mentoring and support for people elsewhere in the country who want to start those kind of things as well. But it's not, you know, it's not always necessarily a strategy that is going to work everywhere. The question is why? You know, what's it for? Why do we want to do it? If we just want to do it because it's a nice thing, you know, we could do it. You know, but actually, what's it going to do and how is it going to stitch things together and what degree of institutional support do we have in the city? So in Exeter, they're doing a lot of work now with, the, with getting the university on board, they've got the football club on board, the rugby club on board, getting those big sort of institutions as well as the kind of local traders uh, is, is, is a key part of it. Was the £21 note your idea? It reminds you a, a little of uh, a unit that some people re will remember called a guinea. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's probably uh, worth about, in its buying power, it probably buys the same amount of stuff yes. as a guinea used to in, uh, uh, in the distant past. Well, the first idea of a, the first idea of a £21 note that I ever saw was, was Lewis. They did a 1, a 5, a 10 and a £21 note. Mm. And I thought, that's so brilliant. What a great idea. Why not do a £21 note? <coughs> but actually part of the reason why we did one in Totnes was that off the back of that economic blueprint that said if we can manage a 10% shift, that's £2 million in our economy every year, we sell those £21 notes for £20. 
so is the first 5%. It's saying, here's the first 5%, we'll meet you in the middle. Here's 5%, you do the other 5%. And actually, we, that, that money that we lose, that 5% that we lose, we make up from the number of times people come to town, they buy a £21 note take-home. I mean, if you go to town as a £21 note on holiday and you want to take home a souvenir, what are you going to take? £21 note or a bag of fudge? It's a bit of a toss-up. <laughs> or actually, if you're, actually, Ben Howard, who's a very popular singer at the moment, he's on a £10 note because he's from Tottenham. So a lot of the younger people take the £10. But actually, that kind of covers it. you know. And then, so there's a really good story there about when it's, it's the 10%. Yeah, it's, it's 5% of the 10%. So I just missed this question. So how is the the understood? And I mean, is it purely left in a circular after all? Is there a central administration banking type operation? Yeah, we have in our in our for ages in our in the, in the TTT office we had a safe in the corner, which was where all the notes were. And one time we had this film crew came from South Korea, and they said, oh, and they were filming about transition. They came in. Oh, this is the bank of Totnes. <laughs> and my friend Ben, who you are bank manager of bank of Totnes. They thought it was just fantastic. This was the safe. This is the thing in the corner. Um, but so no, there there is a um, there is a community interest company, a CIC, that is the Totnes Pound CIC, and the, the Bristol Pound is administered by the credit union. So some of them are administered by credit unions, or you set up a model that kind of holds it. So. It's the only currency in the world where if there's a run on the bank, everybody gets their money back. Because if, you, if there are 5,000 Tottenham's pounds in circulation, there's 5,000 pounds in a bank account. So uh, what a number of them do, actually, is they have an expiry date. The Brixton pounds have an expiry date, so they're valid for two years. And then they bring out new notes. The Exeter pound business model is a little bit different. They want to bring out new notes quite regularly to kind of keep it sort of current. And you know, who's on the next one? And what's the story about that? And then actually, then you and then you take other ones out of circulation. So it means that you know if you've issued five thousand David Bowie ten pound notes, then there's fifty thousand pounds in circulation. Yeah, that's right. My maths is so bad. Uh, yeah, something like that. And then uh, and then it means that you know that once that date has passed, you've got fifty thousand pounds in the bank, uh, which you can then use to invest in a scheme or low interest loans to other people or do other things with it. You know. Um, there are some, there's one, so the Stroud Pound used a model that they used in Germany in the 30s, uh, which is called Demirage, which is the idea that a local currency that kind of goes off, it loses some of its value every month. So you have to pay sort of 3% of its cover value every month to keep it uh, up at the same value. So the incentive is to spend it. Yeah. And so it circulates. So that's what they did with Stroud. And so there, there, was, a, there was one called the Virgil, which was an Austrian currency called the Virgil and actually that period in time it ran for about four or five years the Virgil and it was done like that you had to pay every every couple of months I think to kind of keep its value and it was a time of unpro- all the all the finest buildings in the town were built during that period it was a time of great prosperity because this money was just flying around all over the place you know. yeah. what does the tax man think uh, the tax man doesn't really have anything to do with it, really, because it's, it's, uh, it goes through the tills in exactly the same way any, any other money goes through. Does the mayor of Bristol pay tax on this? <laughs> That's a good question, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I'm sure he does, because I'm sure he's terribly legit about these kind of things. I mean, there are a number of organisations now in Bristol who have, who have the Bristol Pound uh, built, into their, um, built into their payroll. 
So if you work for Sustrans or the Soil Association or Bristol City Council, you can take a percentage of your salary in Bristol pounds. And it's really interesting talking to people who do that, who have said, oh, you know, for years and years I always tried to support local businesses and I always tried to do my all that kind of stuff. But actually, when you've got 10% of your salary in Bristol pounds, you know, it's really fascinating how it kind of changes your behaviour. Even though you thought you were doing that kind of stuff for years, it actually really kind of focuses the mind. But in terms of if you're a business and you take Bristol and you take topmost pounds in your till, you know, usually they think that they kind of go back out again as change or you spend them on procuring local services or you spend them on going to the shop to buy this and that. So they, they, they kind of circulate around. You know, but there's, there's not yet any businesses that do like 90% of their turnover in topmost pounds and struggle to work out how to pay the tax man. That's not really a problem. But actually the beauty of what they're doing in Bristol is that you can spend them on your council tax and then they go to the city council and then they have to figure out what to do with them and all they can do is put them back into the local economy again. Just a, just a point of information, if, if, if people are interested in the idea of the decaying currency, there's a book written by a guy called um, Charles Eisenstein called Sacred Economics. There is. Yeah. There's also a very good book by Richard Douthwaite called Short Circuit, which tells the story of that, uh, of that scheme. I think it's out of print now, but you'll probably get a second, a second hand. And that, that tells the story of a lot of those kind of schemes. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in the milk factory. Um, first, I'm, I'm quite interested to know on what terms the community has access to it and what they're allowed to do. Does, does, does the, do the people who originally only still own it, or what, what, I mean, it sounds wonderful if you go in and take this over for community use. But I'm, and you're talking about you know, you've got to own more assets. I'm, I, yes, I'm prepared to take a risk, but I'm, I, I would really want some solid ground on, on things like property and land and yeah, assets and things like that. Of course, yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we spent a year and a half negotiating the legal agreement that we yeah. finally signed, because we were taking this asset on on behalf of the community, and you want to. Well, I'm talking about responsibility. I mean, I'm, I'm a trustee of, of the equation <coughs> here, the area focus, so I've, I've done quite a bit of, sort of training okay. on that. So I understand about the responsibilities, and I'm guessing that there's got to be some kind of similar responsibility on a project like that. And, yeah. and I think that quite scares people. Um, because we, we, we've been offered land by the council, and said, oh, no, 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 we don't own any land, because everybody sees it as a, as a huge minefield, and we'll all be responsible, and nobody wants that. Well, the way that we did that, so at the moment, the site still belongs to the company, so Dairy Crest still own that site. Uh, but the contract is that up until the stage, that, that they own it up until the stage when we get a planning consent. At the stage when we get a planning consent, and there's one building on the site that needs to stay, which is a listed building that is above Kingdom Brunel built. So once we've done a little bit of work on that building and we've got the planning consent, uh, then the third of the site transfers into our ownership. The developer get their part of it, so Dairy Crest gets some money back at that stage from that. And then the larger part of the site, then what we've got planning permission on it, then is valued. That value is worked out. That enables you to set a land value for that. And then off that come various things like a percentage for the fact that we got the planning in the first place, other things that they still need to do on the site, and then that works out the value of it. So, so at the moment we don't own anything, but we have a very like a contract about that thick, about the stages about what happens. So, so. How do people feel about it? I mean, have you got people who are confident in taking their own? Absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you have to have the right people to do it. You've got people with those sorts of skills. We've got people with those skills, and we've also got people, you know, there's and, and, and a group of us who, who, who have a particular level of stubbornness <laughs> that has sustained them through seven years of like, that is going to happen, that is, that is what's going to happen. The only thing that's going to happen on that site is this. And that, you, you know, you need, you need a drive with this kind of thing because it takes a long time. And, it, and it's only going to get there if, if, if it's something which becomes, you know, this is kind of my working life's work, I think, making this project happen, you know. So, so it's, it's, it's a kind of a big commitment, but the, but the thing that's really brilliant is, uh, is how excited everybody is about it. You know, the, the, the level of kind of, of, of fascination and, and, and kind of pride people have in it around the town is really great. We're doing this thing at the moment which is where by the time we go to submitting for this community right to build order, we want to have had 5,000, we want to have had conversations about Atmos with 5,000 people in the town. And so we have these 20-something volunteers who we call the Atmos ambassadors. And the idea is that there are 20 people who've agreed to have conversations with 100 people in their part of the town. So all across the town we've got Atmos ambassadors out knocking on the neighbours' doors, having conversations about Atmos, and in all of that stuff, it's just sort of bringing people together. Because although it's 50% you need, of course if 10 people come out and vote and seven say yes, it's not really a re resounding endorsement. Mm -hmm. and you want to have a really good turnout and a real sense of, this is fantastic. So, but yeah, in, in terms of the legal stuff, it's all kind of very, very set out. The stages by which it will all kind of unfold. And then yeah, who and gets what more stage. And yeah, I mean, at the moment we're doing the designs, so we're working with the designers, and that's all sort of coming together and going, <laughs> becoming more and more and more refined. But it's, it's you know, it's, uh, what I would really hope is that, you know, what we're finding is that everything we need to do, no one's really done before. Mm. So every step of it, you have to make a new rule book exactly. and you have to do everything. So actually, for other people, then doing it after you've been a lot easier. Thank you. Is there a man first? Well, um, fantastic talk, thank you so much for that. Um, is there a sort of, are there any guidelines about the minimum size of town where a local currency can work? And does it work if most of your shops are franchises? And can it drive that in a different direction or does it basically not really work? It was, it was really interesting. When they started the Brixton Pound, I remember they rang me up the next day and said, oh, this is really interesting. So far so this morning, Starbucks, Marks and Spencers, uh, five or six other people have all got in touch and asked if they could take the Brixton Pound. And, uh, and, they, and they all of a sudden they felt really powerful. And they could say, well, maybe if... <laughs> and, uh, uh, but actually, of course, what they didn't, didn't realise was anyone could take them. Really, the, the, the notes, mm. you know, anyone can, so you don't really need permission. But um, <laughs> a key part of it, I think, is that actually it, it, it works because it's about local independent businesses. So I think if you have a town where there are very few local independent businesses, it's going to kind of struggle to get a foothold. Mm. So uh, mm. I think possibly in that situation, you might be better to kind of take a step back in terms of... Um, uh, you know something, some of the stuff around the kind of local entrepreneurs forum, and uh, you know having a business and livelihoods group, and trying to incubate some of those new things so that you've got 
What, what, what happened in Tottenham, one of the first things was we, we started uh, a business and livelihoods group, which was particularly looking at that. And there were meetings every month where people would be invited from businesses already running in the town. So we built a kind of a foundation of a lot of those people doing kind of interesting ethical green local businesses, feeling part of a bigger, you know, starting to stitch those people in to a bigger story is probably a good place to start. And then maybe looking at where the gaps are and trying to encourage people to start things to fill those gaps. Because what you can do as well is, as a transition group, you know, like if, if you can, uh, it's quite nice to know that if you're starting a business, you've got this wider community of people who are going to support you. So we have these two brilliant women uh, in town who started a local f uh, a catering company called The Kitchen Table who focus on local, local seasonal food. And actually they get lots of work through being part of it and knowing that community and events that are coming up and so on. So building that kind of community first and then saying, would a local currency be useful to kind of help stitch this together? But if you've got like three independent shops and all the chains, it's probably not going to have that much impact really. Um, there are lots of people who are I think the question 
that, that really fascinates me about all of this is if, if, we, if we really want to scale up what we're doing and we want to become a kind of a, an economic development process in the place where we live, in the kind of way I've been talking about, how would we, how would we structure ourselves? And I think often there is a um, there is a, a, a kind of an expectation in kind of community work and sustainability stuff that, that we all work as volunteers forever, and that somehow that's the kind of morally sort of purest way of doing it. And if we bring in money, the whole thing kind of gets contaminated, you know. And then I go to transition groups, people say. Are we the, uh, we're all white middle class, and you know, why, why, why might that be? What could we do about it? And those two things are very much connected, I think, actually. Because there's a, often there's this kind of, sort of tyranny of volunteerism that, that, that actually the only people who are able to volunteer a lot tend to be people who have spare time, who have the kind of confidence, who have the skills to do that. And uh, I, I was in America last year in Richmond, in California. Where there's a, and I was doing a talk with this brilliant woman called Daria Robinson, runs a thing they call Urban Tilth, who's working in a very, very poor, mostly black neighborhood and uh, teaching urban food production to young men in that community, to young, young people in that community, in the, in the shadow of this huge Chevron refinery that exploded and covered the whole place in toxic slime. I mean, like, awful. And she said, that's so brilliant to hear someone say that, she said, because if this is a revolution that depends on volunteers, I can't be part of it, and nor can anybody where I live. And actually, for me, there's something really interesting about starting to think about how we're going to create some livelihoods for people out of this. Mm. It's, really, it's a really important shift. And I, and I meet, uh, about five years ago, I got rung up by Ashoka, who supports social entrepreneurs. And they said, you are a social entrepreneur. I'd never heard this phrase before. You are a social entrepreneur. And I said, well, what's a social entrepreneur? And they kind of ran things. Sort of, and I found it a really useful lens to look at through, actually. So in Thomas, we had the first four years where we were all volunteers. But there were four of us in particular who gave, uh, who gave some of our time to lay the foundations for the project. So we set up a, a, a structure. We, we set up the website. We set up the company. We set up a bank account. We got some. We got a local philanthropist who gave us five thousand pounds to pay one of us to fundraise, who then turned that into ninety grand worth of funding, which meant that we could start certain projects off. I think what happens is you get to a certain stage as well. People talk about, you know, sometimes funders say to us, "How can we best help transition?" You know, and most funders like to either fund something like Transition Network, which is the network disseminating an idea. Or they like to fund projects with a beginning and the middle and an end. And we say actually our observation at the moment is the key way to support transition is by what we call putting the jam in the donut. Because the danger with transition is what happens is you start it and it's really energetic. And you have a food group and a housing group and an energy group. And the energy group starts an energy company. And the food group starts loads of food projects. And some of those turn into enterprises. And all the energy from those original catalysty people in the middle all drifts out to the edge. And you can end up like in Brixton now, where they're saying, we just can't get support for that person in the middle. So we're going to, there's a risk that we end up with this donut effect of Brixton Energy and the Restart Project and the Brixton Pound, who all, like in 10 years, remember somehow in the beginning they were to do with transition something, but that, that middle has gone. Whereas the, the key thing that we have is about four years ago, we got 
three years of funding from Esme Fairbairn Foundation to have someone doing that role, Francis Northrop, who does that role, who's just brilliant at sort of stitching it all together. And that stuff's really important. But I think there's a kind of a question about how, I mean, obviously, you know, this is, this is something that needs, that needs a lot of volunteers, you know, and actually a lot of people are happy to give their time and dedication and love to making this stuff happen. It's really important. And also it's really important that when we have people who are volunteers that we look after those people and make sure it's a kind of rewarding, useful kind of experience for people. But at the same time, I think looking at how can we, if we were to look at this in terms of if we had a local entrepreneur forum and if we had a, an energy company and if we, whatever the different elements are, how could we look at those in such a way that they're creating livelihoods? How do we design that in? How would, a, how would an entrepreneur look at doing this? Because when I meet people who have brain, their brains working are wired in a completely different way to how my brain works. And I remember asking Michael Schumann, who's an American guy who, who does a lot of research and writing about local economies, and I said to him, what one thing would you reckon, suggest to transition groups who want to, um, who want to scale up what they're doing? And he said, go to business school. <laughs> they literally don't go to business school, but actually, you know, we need people in our groups who can think like that, you know, because that's that that's that's where the step up comes. So rather than thinking, okay, we could do a, a rooftop garden on a on a building, actually, what it, what would it look like if that was designed as a training program and a tourist attraction and a, and an intensive food production thing and a reskilling project? Da, 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 you know, <coughs> how, how how do we start to bring that kind of thinking? That feels to me like. That's the kind of evolutionary leap, I think, in transition. And actually, you know, then we can start to be looking and saying, well, you know, we're starting to create livelihoods for people. If you look at the cooperative movement, well, that started out a handful of people with an idea. 10 or 15 years later, they were creating thousands of jobs all over the country. And people didn't think before they took on the job, well, do I agree with cooperative principles? Do I not agree? Actually, it was work, it was happening, it was changing the places where they live. You know, my, in, in, in a sense, in 15 or 20 years, it doesn't really matter if it's called transition or not. You know, it's, it's, you know we start to see that shift happening. And, um, and, and for me, actually, with, there's a whole strand of transition which we call the Reconomy Project. So Reconomy.org is the website for the Reconomy Project. And that's really about trying to give... Because often people who are attracted to transition might not be people who come from that, usually aren't people who come from a background of thinking like that. And uh, so, how, so there's a lot of work going on about the tools people need in order to do that. In Derbyshire, there's a thing called DE4 Food, that's a local food project started by four women there. And one of them said, uh, we all spent, in all our lives before this, we all spent as much energy as we could getting as far away as possible from ever running a business. And now we're running this, and we're learning, and it's going really well. You know, it's the kind of step up, I think, and it's an interesting shift for us all. Okay. That's great, and that, that uh, the economy, you say, yeah. is that is that, that's a good thing to... It's very good, and, there, and there's, there's lots of resources on there. There's, there's economy training, there's people who sort of come and run the economy events here. They're doing the economy events around the country. You know, bringing, bringing those different people together who are doing things already. And there's some great stuff as well in, uh, in Sussex. So Transition Lewis uh, started their own energy company called Avesco, called the Ouse Valley Energy Services Company. And they, they, do, um, uh, they do peer-to-peer support. So there's 10 communities around them who get support to set up their own community energy company from there. So those kind of things can, can work really well as well. 
I think we're out of time. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank Rob very much for an absolutely yeah. fantastic evening.